I think it's safe to say that most people don't like mosquitoes. They suck your blood and they give you itchy sores for days on end after. However, at the same time, people don't like spiders. Even though they love eating mosquitoes, they have a creepy feel about them. And at the same time, people are scared of lizards, even though they love eating mosquitoes too. To convince us why we shouldn't be scared of these tiny reptiles is Anna Thonis, a fourth-year PhD student attending Stony Brook University in New York. My name is Nathan, and this is At Risk. Why don't you start by introducing yourself and what you do? All right. Uh, so my name is Anna Thonis. I am a fourth-year PhD candidate at University of New York in the Department of Ecology and Evolution. And I'm a herpetologist, conservation biologist, um, landscape ecologist. I really love working in the tropics um, with tropical reptile species and I'm just really passionate about um, outreach and getting people more excited about reptiles and amphibians, which we can just say that's the entire field of herpetology, and just kind of trying to get people to understand why they're not so scary. And for a further explanation, what is herpetology? Yeah, so is the study of reptiles and amphibians and their ecology and evolution. Pretty much any question you could ask about reptiles and amphibians would fall into the category of herpetology. Um, and we often call them herps. So I tell people like, oh, I study herps, which, you know, most people don't know what that means. So you have to clarify, but um, I'm a herpetologist. I study herps, but I specifically work on lizards, so. And what specific research have you been doing? Yeah, so over the past few years for my dissertation, most research focuses on Puerto Rican anolis lizards called anoles. So anoles are the one of the most like species rich genera in the world, which, you know, in layman's terms just means that there's a ton of them. There's so many different types of anoles and they're distributed throughout the Southeast United States, um, parts of Mexico, Central America, the Caribbean and the Northern half of South America. And so I study questions related to their ecology and also to their distributions. And so um, I mentioned that I'm a landscape ecologist. I find it really interesting to try to understand what controls species distribution. So why do we find species where we find them? And then how things like or land use change might affect those distributions through time. So that's kind of what I work on for my PhD and, and what I hope to work on following my PhD as well. And what are you trying to find in these lizards? <laughs> uh, great question. So, well, it kind of depends on the exact study question that I'm addressing. I was doing this competition study recently, and we were trying to, you know, understand competition between these, these several species of Puerto Rican anole. All of my field work takes place in Puerto Rico. And so I work on the 10 species of 
anolis lizard that live in Puerto Rico and trying to look at their competitive strengths. Um, but I'm wrapping up that project now and I'm actually going to be going back to some of the distribution work that truthfully I prefer. I, I, I prefer the distribution work. Um, doesn't always require as much field work. Work is my favorite, but I find like studying distribution is really interesting. So with distributions, again, just trying to understand, um, you know, what affects their distributions from an ecological standpoint, but also what affects their distributions from like a climate change standpoint. And I'm also doing some work with hurricane data for that research. Uh, you mentioned competition in these lizards. What does that mean? Yeah. So um, because these lizards are very similar in a lot of ways, um, they often compete for many of the same resources. So they compete for things like food resources, um, they compete for structural habitat space, so where we find them, and they just ultimately, you know, they can, okay, so pretty much they compete for space and they compete for food. And those right. are the main things that they're really competing for. Um, typically, we don't see them actively fighting for these things. Um, and intraspecific competition is typically found to be higher than interspecific competition. So intraspecific competition is competition between individuals of the same species. Um, so, for instance, I work on one species called the yellow chindinole. And so, you know, competition within the yellow chindinole might be higher than competition between, say, the yellow chindinole and the crested anole. And so competition between individuals of different species is called interspecific competition. But because different species still compete for very similar resources, um, you can look at all different types of competition dynamics. And what did you end up finding? So, I mean, we really, we did this huge study. I guess I can talk about the field work. Maybe that'd be kind of cool. So we did this huge study in Puerto Rico um, last summer, as well as parts of this past January. So we were there for three and a half months, summer of 2021, uh, about a month, January 2022. And I'm actually headed back to Puerto Rico in a week to conduct about six more weeks of field work. And so I had this team of 22 University of Puerto Rico undergraduate biology students who were just like the most wonderful, amazing people that I got to work with. And um, we captured almost or over 2000 uh, lizards. And so we did these competition studies where we removed individuals of certain species and added individuals of certain species to kind of see if the, the um, different ecological characteristics or behavioral characteristics of the species changed when you either removed competitors or added competitors. And then we, we quantify the changes. And so what I can say is that we found evidence of competition um, between these species and, and we were able to quantify it in some really cool ways that hasn't, haven't been done before. Um, hmm. But unfortunately that's all I can say about that right now. That's fine. And you were also talking about their distribution, and even though you haven't started it yet, um, can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, so um, I use a type of model called species distribution models. Um, ultimately, what they involve are you have species occurrence records. So a single occurrence record is like a latitude and a longitude. So if you went into your backyard and you saw a blue jay, and you recorded the coordinates of that blue jay, that would be a single occurrence record. So species yeah. distribution models require, you know, well, the more occurrence records, the better, right? But 
they they require at least like a couple dozen to a couple hundreds depending on the species and so we use occurrence records and we use environmental variable layers and so those can be things like climatic variables so you could have like precipitation like average precipitation average temperature for a region but you can also get it to be more specific you could have like maximum precipitation in the wettest quarter of the year or mm. uh, or like you know highest highest temperature in the coldest quarter of the year and so they can really you can really break it down because we're trying to understand which climatic variables at least with these uh, if you're looking at climate data you're trying to understand which climatic variables may control species distribution most. So if a species is really sensitive to precipitation or like it requires a lot of precipitation to be somewhere, then a predictor variable that might be very important for that species might be say um, precipitation in the driest quarter of the year. Because right. if the precipitation in the driest quarter of the year is too low, that's not gonna work. So it probably can't be found in that area. So mm. we have all these climatic variables. And then we also have, um, ideally, in your models, you also have things like, the, like non-climatic variables. So, like maybe you have, um, like mountain slope. Maybe you have, um, depending on what you're working on, if you're working on plants, maybe you have soil chemistry. Um, maybe you have soil pH. Um, some that I have, I have geology in my models. Um, trying to think, what else I have in there? But geology is in there. Topography is in there. Uh, and just anything that we can use that could potentially be important to the distribution. And so then it's a matter of figuring out if it's important and if it's important, important incorporating it into your model along right. with all the other variables. And then what the models do is they predict habitat suitability, also referred to as probability of occurrence. And so when you, I like to call it habitat suitability, they are synonymous terms, but when you're predicting habitat suitability, what the, ma the maps often look like is like a deeper red means the area is highly suitable to that species, whereas maybe blue or green means it's not suitable or less suitable to that species. So that's how they work. Um, there's a bit of, so that's kind of how what I work on. And so I'm building these species distribution models for all 10 species of Puerto Rico's Anolis lizards, right? Or I started... <laughs> And then COVID hit, and I'm going back to it in a few weeks, so. And why does this matter? So distributions are, I mean, I'm biased, but I think they're really interesting because they're so potentially sensitive to things that we see humans can change, um, either on fine, like smaller timescales, like land development and deforestation, or longer timescales, like climate change. And so right. if we can understand which, what species find to be suitable habitat right now, and then we can predict into the future how that area where they're found or what they find suitable may change, we can make predictions about how species are going to fare in the face of things like climate change or deforestation or land use change, which obviously has some really broad conservation implications. You mentioned like a species occurrence is when you see an individual of a species and you mark it down, right? Yeah. But what happens if you see the same individual multiple times? So that can happen. Um, typically how these occurrences get collected, that is 
something that is taken into account. So for instance, you might go and collect occurrence data and you make it make a point to not record the same individual more than once. Um, obviously this can happen uh, for like, you know, say, you know, I'm from New Hampshire, we have bears or, or moose, whatever you wanna refer to, but say I'm on a hike and I see black bear number one. And then, right. you know, my dad's on a hike a month later and he sees black bear number one. He doesn't know it's the same black bear that I saw. And if we both logged it as an occurrence, yes, technically there would be a duplicate record in there. Um, that doesn't really affect the models too much as long as it's not happening all the time. Because assume, like, it, it, the models are these big algorithms that take into account, or you can have them take into account things like sampling bias, which would, that would potentially kind of fall into. Um, you can also do this thing called spatial thinning. So for instance, if you went and only surveyed one area super intensely, but you didn't want the model to, I mean, models don't think, but for lack of a better word, you didn't want the model to think that meant only that area was abundant. You can like spatially thin the data so it doesn't look like a misrepresentation of where we find the species. So a lot of these types of things have been taken into account by landscape ecologists and just people working with these types of models to make sure that we can reduce bias. But obviously there's going to be times when these mistakes happen, like my black bear example. And you mentioned that you're returning to the field soon. Yes, um, I am. What preparations have you been making? Do you need to make any preparations? Oh, I need to make so many. <laughs> Thankfully, because I leave in five days, they are made at this point in time. But um, there's a lot of things. So, um, you know, in 2021, the summer, I had a team of 22 field assistants. Uh, some of them were able to help in January. And some of them are still helping this coming summer. But, you know, they're undergraduates. They graduate. They have jobs. They go to grad school. You know, they have other things they want to do with their life. I always encourage them to get other experiences because it gives them an ability to, you know, build that breadth of knowledge and understand and explore other interests they might have. So one of the biggest preparations I always have to do is recruiting um, field assistants because I need a big sample size for what I do and or realistically everyone should need a big sample size because bigger sample size is always better but yeah. um we've kind of set this baseline that I'll have a certain sample size and so now we have to maintain the same survey effort so um so I have I think 12 field assistants that are helping me the surveys this upcoming field season aren't as, ten as intense as the ones last year so uh, I only have 12 field assistants this time um, last summer I had two teams, so every team had 12 people, but then the, you know, one team was in the field three days, one team was in the field two days. This summer it's like we just have one team of 12. Um, so that's a big preparation. Uh, ordering more tags for the lizards. Always have to make sure I do that. Um, prepping the rods we use, ordering more of those. Um, renting a rental car because public transportation in Puerto Rico is virtually non-existent so I should be able to get to my study sites which are in the middle of nowhere um so just lots of things like that uh you know accommodations telling the professors that I work with when I'll be there things like that mm. 
And what are you looking forward to this coming field season? Oh, great question. I think most of all, I'm looking forward to seeing. So some background, every single lizard that we capture gets a unique tag ID. These tag IDs are inserted on the underside of their leg, and we can actually see the tag through their top layer of skin. Um, it's considered a super safe technique for them, which is why we use it. And it actually will stay with the lizard until it dies. And so when we were there in 2021, we tagged, you know, um, like a thousand over like over 1500 individual unique lizards. And then what happens is you tag a bunch. And then when you go back and you resurvey, you get individuals that you already captured and you can tell because they already have a tag ID. So we have individuals that have been captured and tagged from the summer of 2021. We have more individuals that were captured and tagged in January 2022. And so I'm really excited to see, you know, how many individuals do we capture this coming summer? And of the ones we recapture, how many are were initially tagged last summer and how many were initially tagged this January? And the reason that's exciting and interesting is because this method, this ecological survey method, is called mark recapture. Um, pretty intuitive name. You catch them, mark them, release them, recapture them. Crazy. And the cool thing is it allows you, if you do repeated sampling occasions of the same area, it allows you to quantify, to measure things like birth rate and death rate and like population size. And it kind of depends on how you're doing your study, but you can, you can measure what we call demographic parameters for a species. And those are often really important, especially when it comes to conservation planning. And that data is unfortunately not quantified for a lot of the Puerto Rican and old species. So um, I work on three species in particular. So right now with those surveys, I've worked on the other species too. But because of that, I'm excited to see what proportions we get this season, because that'll kind of give me some insight on just the demographics and how long they live and just cool stuff like that. And I know that you've mentioned the competition and the distribution, but how does it all fit together? Why is your project important? So, I mean, I think that with respect to, uh, it's, it's a good question. Obviously I feel like I have some inherent biases there where I'm like, it's important because it's important, but that's not really an answer. Um, I think the biggest takeaway is that, unfortunately, we don't know much about lizard ecology or even just herp, herp ecology in general, or again, herps being reptiles and amphibians. Um, when we think of mammals or birds, we know way more about their ecology than we know about, I mean, specifically for me, lizards, but reptiles, amphibians probably. And so, again, that is the kind of information we often really need for conservation assessments or status assessments and conservation planning. And so for me, what it really comes down to is doing these ecological studies, doing these distribution studies, which are also considered ecological studies, allows us to synthesize and grow our understanding of ecology of these species. And I should have said this, but these lizards, so I, there's about 400 species of anole 
throughout their distribution, which means that anoles make up about 10% of all the lizards in the world. And we just know so little about their ecology. Um, anoles are so frequently studied to answer evolutionary questions um, and genomic and genetic questions. But when it comes to ecology, it's kind of overlooked in some ways, which is really sad. And so we need this data to see, you know, are there populations trending downward, trending upward? Are they going to potentially have a chance in the face of climate change, especially insular species, which are species on islands? They have different, different risk factors associated with them, which is also why I'm studying hurricanes. And so I think my work, although I do believe that we need so much work to be done, sometimes I feel like my work is just like a speck of dust in that area. Um, I do believe my work has the potential to really influence work that we can do towards improving the conservation um, of, of these lizards in Puerto Rico specifically. And are these lizards really crucial to their ecosystems? Yeah, they are. So great question. Um, so they are super abundant. So we didn't just catch thousands of lizards because, and they were like super hard to find. We caught thousands because they're, they're everywhere. So, mm. so they're everywhere and they eat like every insect they can catch and birds eat them, snakes eat them, other lizards eat them, frogs eat them, sometimes spiders eat them. So, you know, there aren't really any native mammal species in Puerto Rico, but pretty much what can ever catch an anole will eat it. And whatever an anole can catch will eat that. So they're really, really critical in the ecosystems that they inhabit. And um, just an example of something to think about is that if you lived in Puerto Rico, um, and I have so many friends and wonderful people that I work with that live in Puerto Rico now, because I've been going there for several years, if all of the anoles on the island disappeared, you would have this psychotic boom in so many insects, including ones you don't want, like mosquitoes. Right. So they are just, even from like the human perspective, we want anoles to stay around, but especially for like ecosystem functioning and ecosystem health, we need them. Um, now they aren't necessarily at risk. A lot of their populations are very stable. So it seems we don't actually have those, those trends officially quantified. But, you know, like there's, they're pretty abundant. But that said, you don't want to wait until that species is in rapid decline to be like, oh, oh, gosh, I wish we knew something about its ecology. Right. right like, then right. it's too late. So. Um, so, yeah, that's 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 my answer. <laughs> and um, at the beginning, you pre you briefly mentioned landscape ecology. Yeah. What is that? So landscape ecology, um, remember my advisor described it one time as geography plus ecology. So it's really just trying to understand how spatial scale and ecology interact. So when we address questions at, say, a very local scale, you know, certain ecological processes might seem really important. But then at a broader scale, like, for instance, the landscape scale, which I always think is kind of a vague term, but a larger scale than the local scale, say like, pretty much say it was like you were looking at your backyard as a local scale or like a really local scale. And then you were looking at like the whole town you live in. Mm. So the ecological processes that are at play in your backyard might be really important at a small scale, but they might be totally averaged out and unimportant at a really large scale. So kind of trying to understand how scale interacts with um, ecology and because it's 
it's scale. And we know that species have distributions that go from local to regional to landscape to even more air, like larger area scales. Um, that's kind of, that's why I say I'm a landscape ecologist because I work so heavily with distributions and ecology and distributions to me are very geographic, so. And as a final question here to wrap up our interview, what would you say you like most about your work? Oh, I love that question. Um, I think what I truly love most about it, okay, I have like a two-part answer because I'm a people person, but I'm also a reptile person. I think that I love getting to interact with and meet and learn from and teach so many different people from such diverse backgrounds. And because of my work taking me all over the place, I feel like I'm really lucky and really fortunate to get to have these really unique and diverse interactions. Um, and I think that's probably number one, but I feel like it's hard for me to not say the other number one, which is that I'm, I've am i been obsessed with reptiles and amphibians since I was super little, like super, super young. And my work, yes, it allows me to, to work and do field work where I can see these, these species that I have marveled over my entire life in their natural habitats. And it is such a euphoric feeling whenever I see one of these species in the wild, like nothing compares to it. So I, I love what I do. Um, I would never change it. And I just, I feel very lucky that I'm able to have the career that I do. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, you're very knowledgeable. Thank you. This was wonderful. Thanks for listening. If you can find Anna on Twitter at Anna in the field. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at risk podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please share it with friends and family and feel free to leave a voice message using the link in the show notes. Anyways, short message for this week, but I will talk to you again soon.